you know, gun owners love their children too and are worried about this and don't like the situation either. Um, and, you know, polls show, you know, most gun owners, most NRA members, you know, agree with universal background checks and most of the kids' agenda. Um, but there's been this, like, don't give an inch mentality. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with journalist Dave Cullen, who's best known as the author of the book Columbine, which is an in-depth investigation of the school shooting that happened in Colorado 20 years ago, and really is one of the best nonfiction books to come out in the past decade. I really recommend reading it. Dave's newest book is Parkland, about the school shooting last year in Florida. And while Columbine explores the whys and hows of the shooters, Parkland focuses more on the victims, on the students of the school, and their political activism in the wake of the shooting. I've actually been friendly with Dave since we both wrote for Salon.com 20 years ago. I wrote about travel back then, and still do. And weirdly enough, Dave, who was writing about Columbine back then, still finds himself writing about and commenting on school shootings. Odds are you've seen him talking on venues like CNN in the wake of mass shootings since by circumstance he's become something of an expert on the topic. Because Dave is an old friend, this episode is cut down from a much more wide-ranging three-hour conversation. And be aware that due to the informal nature of our interview, Dave's audio comes in a bit hot sometimes. Now, Dave is opinionated and fascinating to listen to on this topic after all these years of reporting it. And our conversation begins by focusing on all the media myths that can surround a school shooting, how certain stories and speculations can get ahead of the actual truth in these situations, and how big publications aren't always that transparent about correcting their own facts. Let's listen in. The story you covered was also saturated with narrative. There was the idea that the Cassie Bernal story, that this Christian publisher published the book knowing that her story wasn't really true. And so yeah. there's this, in a way, the story of her you know, standing up for God in, in, in the face of being shot is stronger than what actually happened. And then there were also these stories that you were sort of coming up against that was like the trench coat mafia, or, or their Avengers standing up for the bullies of the world. And so in, while you were creating narrative, you also had a sort of combat narrative that was stronger than, than logic. It is. I mean, people love a good story. And that's why all these myths uh, gain traction. And, you know, I said in Columbine, um, all the myths that became a thing have a kernel of truth. Like, there was a trench coat mafia. And the, kid, the killers did, you know, wear trench coats. So that seems pretty obvious. There's something called the trench coat mafia in the school, which is, you know, something most of us had never heard of. They're wearing trench coats, which was unusual. Obviously, those weren't coincidences. Well, not quite, but kind of. I mean, you know, they were not exactly coincidence. So, like, they didn't know those kids, and there was a... So, but, no, they weren't connected. It, it doesn't mean they were in the trench coat mafia and doing this as part of the trench coat mafia. No, the obvious answer turns out not to be true. Um, but um, anyway, so all these different things. Um, so, but yeah, once a story becomes, especially when a story explains things, then we're, we're just bought into it. Because, uh, you know, we just, because that becomes the meaning in our brains. Because, you know, memory is an interesting thing. We don't remember things the way we think we do. What we remember is like, oh, yeah, it was a thing about an avenge thing. And it was about bullying. And like, that's, 
That's how Columbine is classified in most of our minds. It's this, this tale of like, oh yeah, these two kids rose up against, you know, years of oppression and, you know, kids being picked on, you know, for millennia and they stood up and they did a horrible thing, you know, but, but they were standing up for these people. Like that's, that's how we've internalized what it is. And it doesn't take very long. Um, were you still competing with that when, when the oh, book came out? Oh, God, yes. In fact, I was kind of shocked. Um, yeah, and all these stories had come out. The truth had come out, like the Denver Post and Rocket Mountain News, and everybody had written these, you know, stories about the myths. And like, there's this term that never gets used, but called rollback in journalism, which is when you um, write a story to correct a story without informing your readers that you're actually correcting it. Hmm. It's, it's the chicken shit way of like writing a correction without ever copying to it. And Time Magazine did the most egregious version of this. Um, and they were still a big deal at the time and probably had the power to like maybe the one chance to maybe um, do something about this, especially since they got an exclusive watching the basement tapes of Columbine and their reporter watched them over and over. And so they had this explosive cover story right before Christmas, like what was that, like seven, eight months after Columbine, and it was huge. Um, but they got it by sending a team back, because they knew like we'd basically botched the story. And they sent a big team back to reinvestigate it and do the story. And the letter to the, you know, from the editor, which, well, I guess I won't say who it is, but um, it's a well-known um, nonfiction writer. Um, now, uh, a letter from him saying, you know, oh, we thought, you know, we'd go back and get the story right. He could have said in that letter, like, we totally blew it, and this whole story is correcting. They have this brilliant cover story that is correcting all the myths without ever pointing them out and saying, hmm. um, so this thing ran, it was a big thing, but also because the media doesn't like to cover other people's exclusives, nobody else covered what was in that. Hmm. So they have this huge story correcting the, the record, but unless you were a Time Magazine subscriber or reader, you didn't know, and even then you read it and like, probably thinking, well, this is a little different. I mean, to Was get this story out of your head, somebody needs to slap you in that head, like, no, everything is wrong. Take what you knew, throw that away, here's the real version. They, they pussied out of doing that. They just like pretended like, instead of like copying that, like we can just have this powerful cover story and we don't have to, you know, um, admit that we botched everything. Fuck it, the Denver Post won the Pulitzer for best local coverage. They were the leader of the myths. Everyone that followed them, they won the biggest prize in journalism for one of the biggest travesties in journalism of the past Was 20 it a years. Mafia against bullies type story? Everything. Okay. And, the, and the, the, the targeting of jocks from day okay. one okay. when the Rocky Mountain News was not. The Rocky Mountain News never did that. And the, the Denver Post broke the rules. They're required by the rules because I submitted something to it. And the rules say like any corrections or blah, 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 anything along, you know, you have to submit. They had run a story saying the 10, you know, big myths of Columbine, which again is not like an official correction because they, they didn't call it a correction. They ran a fucking, you know, huge correction story without, you know, saying we got it wrong and then didn't hmm. include that as required, which would have basically said like, oh, but so then everything you submitted was wrong and you're, you're, you're submitting a bunch of stuff that was like totally, that is just actually, that's, that's just such a, um, a travesty uh, that they got away with of warning the Pulitzer for like this, you know, this nightmare and all the other reporters on it knew it. Uh, but, you know, but so, so the, 
the journalists never copped to the fact that we got it wrong. I mean, in a way we did, yeah, but again, like, okay, so in a way, oh, we run the story of the big myths, but like, as if the myths just sort of like happened there, not that like, who created those myths? But anyway, so but to the point of when, um, when the Columbine book came out, the AP, I can't remember whether the woman who reviewed the story or just, I, I guess maybe reviewed the book, or maybe doing a new story on it, um, she interviewed me and she said, yeah, I read your book and it seems sort of like crazy talk, like all this stuff that was like, you know, completely contrary. So I had to, you know, go through our database and see it's like, oh, it was all true. Like there were AP stories backing up everything you said, but like, I didn't know that. I'm like, I'm an AP, like, you know, senior writer working on this. Like, I didn't know any of this stuff. So I mean that, yeah, that's the point is like, and, but by the way, so here's what bugs me about the news business and not just because it's me, although, so when my uh, publicist for my publisher was, you know, going to networks and, you know, trying to, you know, pitch this as a story. In 2009. Yeah, in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, and they were like, yeah, but is there, you know, is there news in the book? Hasn't, you know, this stuff already been reported. Oh, it's not news. So it's like, you know, uh, we can't really use it because it's not news. Okay, it's not, not news to whom? Like the AP reporter thinks it's news to her. Like most of the reporters covering this didn't know yet, oh, but because it's been buried somewhere and we failed in our global mission as the media to get this um, message to the readers. So like even we, many of us don't know it, but because it's been out there somewhere, then it's not news so we can't, like get your head examined like you know it's just like you know, it's, it's almost like a comedy thing so luckily it did come out but like uh, yeah they don't get so there's this whole competitive thing where it's not news because they're not breaking it they can't take credit for it what they mean by news is is there can we run you know CBS morning news exclusive never before you know like you know that we're breaking this news can we claim it and then can we get follow-on coverage of everybody else saying that like CBS News broke this news this morning. Everybody wants credit, so it's already been somewhere. It's of no value to them. What about like your job as informing the public? If the public doesn't know this, if less than 1% of the people understand, that's your fucking job. Especially like we're the ones who screwed it up 10 years ago. So but then luckily, it did sort of become the story as things were rolling. And the USA Today reporter, um, Greg Topo, now he's at the Journal of Chronicle higher education was fantastic and he was working with me and he's like and he got it he's like yeah I don't care that this stuff has all been up like my readers this is going to be news to them and they made a cover story out of it it's like he got it. it's like it's news to my readers I don't care if it's been reported anymore not successfully um and it's like you know so like he understood like this is a good story um and he wanted to do it so he spent a lot of time with me and and eventually that became you know you know the story of the book which sold it too is like oh it was like it wasn't what we thought it was. And so then that became the thing of like, oh, um, that sort of like became itself the storyline as in the weeks leading up to, you know, as the books released and up leading up to the anniversary, like, oh, Columbine isn't what you thought it became. So like once one or two outlets made that a story and were sort of succeeding and readers like, what? And, you know, it was trending on things. It was like, oh, then, you know, editors got, oh, that could be a story. Sometimes I just think in the news business, we're just blind to like, Anything can be a story. I, I'm just constantly frustrated by editors like, oh, where's the news peg? Where's the news? Like, like, 
it's interesting and people don't know it. Like, wait, it's this weird competitive. That's why, by the way, my own theories of like, why magazines are dying and they don't suck. Like, I haven't read it for years because they do all sound like the same, you know, six people who live in Manhattan writing the same stuff and all the same staffs who do writing in the same voice and writing the same stories. Like, and your same idea of like, what's news and what people, and like the whole, at least the word zeitgeist has fallen out of fashion, hasn't it? Like, remember like 10 years ago, it was like, oh, the latest zeitgeist. Everybody's trying, the, the zeitgeist is just what a bunch of fucking, you know, people who like go to the same goddamn cocktail parties in Manhattan have decided zeitgeist and everybody else is bored with it because you keep doing the same fucking zeitgeist over and over. That's no different than all the networks when Friends is a hit, spending the next 20 years giving us 50 different sitcoms that look exactly like Friends that all fail because like, we already have Friends. We don't want Friends. We want another thing that's interesting. So create Seinfeld or something. And then that's it. And they try to create, you know, it's the same fucking thing with the news business and like magazines. It's like, Trying to do the same thing drives me nuts. It's interesting. Sorry, I'm way to, off topic. No, but to jump ahead a little bit, this ties into the fact of um, Parkland happened at a time when the kids could create their own huh. narrative. Yeah, yes. Um, and, and good, good call. Uh, right. And we'll get there in a second, but, but really, I think there's, there's many differences what I, that I want to get to. For example, they were looking for dental records uh, for, uh, the, Columbine, for the yeah. Columbine kids, whereas they had all these smartphone photos of, of, of victims mm -hmm. at, at Parkland. But one big difference, and I think that's one reason why the book is different, is that the kids were creating their, their own narrative in a very sophisticated way. Yep. Whereas you had you know, the idea of six Ivy League graduates sort of speaking through their, their teeth uh, about what the story is gonna be. Um, that's sort of changing for, for, yeah. better, for better and for worse. You're right, it really is actually. Yeah, and so, um, so eventually, Columbine caught on. It became sort of a, a, you know, a classic of nonfiction reportage. It sort of changed the way that Columbine is understood. And then, did, did immediately you, you start getting invited on after the Norway shooting, after the Pulse shooting? Um, I know, I think I've seen you by accident on CNN. Oh, yeah. Like, sort of a, I know that guy sort of thing. <laughs> so, so really in the last 10 years you've become a professionalized you know um public shooting guy that, that for whatever reason people think that you are the the this the public shooting whisperer and and you become this expert type person so before we go to yeah. parkland which i want to talk and about some of it happened before the convoy book i can't remember exactly just because i'd written for slate and other so i was getting some um some, you know, TV and writing assignments. I mean, the New York Times asked me to do pieces occasionally and a lot of other magazines. Um, so that was having some leading up to the Columbine book and then a lot more after. And yeah, it was like pretty much now after every school shooting and some other mass shootings, um, I do the rounds and like, ugh. Yeah, sometimes it's been like up to a week. I decided to start scaling back after one, it might've been Newtown, where somebody sent me pictures of uh, me on a show the day it happened or the day after, and then a C-SPAN show, the last one I did a week out, and I looked like I had aged, you know, years. It was like one of those presidential photos, like before and after, where like, you know, they spent eight years in the White House, and it looked like they spent 20 years in there. Um, it was like a version of that in a week, it was like, oh my God. And I, like, I knew I felt that way and just like drained and sucked up. Like you could see it just on my face, just watching me is like, 
God, this person is just like the life force sucked out of them. And I was like, oh God, it's even visible. And you know, my friends were like, yeah. Um, but I'm like, okay. I'm, you know, then I was like cutting it back. I'll do this for two or three days after these and trying not to do it at all sometimes, but they kind of just keep sucking me back in. And I kind of feel obligated, especially the people who really do a good job. Like Anderson Cooper always handles it smartly. And I always have a really smart conversation with him. And when the PBS NewsHour calls and some, MB, some NPR shows, like they always have something to contribute. Um, and then sometimes I do find I have something to write about that another um, angle. Do you feel obligated angle. to sort of correct a lot of these, to, to be a voice of reason amid all of these knee-jerk reactions and Yeah, a stories? voice of something or, you know, it's, oh, can't, you know, it's always something different. You know, for a while it was just commenting on how like basically like don't jump to conclusions, don't start, um, and don't even, you know, people think we're not jumping to conclusions, but don't start speculating. Don't start just like tossing around ideas because that sounds innocent enough, but it's such a slippery slope and that gets us very quickly from the, you know, bouncing around conjecture that just hardens into a fact. And basically, I mean, I can't take, you know, sole credit for it or like, but the media really has changed and gotten way, way better at that. So, and actually it was a, maybe five years ago, I stopped getting on, asked on to talk about that because the media was doing it. I think, I think hosts were inviting me on basically like to talk to their peers and to each other and sort of to ourselves is like, we need to be careful about this. And like, they wanted me on as the voice of that. And that's now kind of course corrected. Like my voice is no longer necessary for that. And, but so I, but there just time and again, seems to be something, you know, and I, so many times I feel like, well, what do I have to add? But there's always something particular about that particular one, um, a different facet. And because I spend a lot of this time and there's other things that I've done behind the scenes too. So by doing Columbine, I developed kind of a cadre of experts uh, that I rely upon. And then some more have come on since then, like Mary Ellen O'Toole, uh, led the FBI uh, school shooter uh, investigation and she pulled together and then the report on school shooters, she actually wrote it. Um, so she was sort of a leading expert, but she couldn't talk to me while at the FBI, but she, um, I didn't even know she wanted to until she retired and then she contacted me and she's like, oh, I loved your book and like, I really wish I could have like participated, but I couldn't, but now I can. But so, um, so a lot of these academics and I don't know, expert kind of shrinks, um, have these email chain conversations after these events and started including me. And so several of these, I'd be in like some of like the leading minds in the world on these mass shootings. And then, you know, they would let me ask my silly questions and like, you know, or chime in and be a part of it. And so I was kind of learning from them all along. And then sometimes I would write a piece based on like, you know, and so I became sort of like, I did become sort of like the mass murder whisperer, like via them, via them, I'd be like, then I would be like the messenger. So we would talk through this and I'm like, okay, can I do a piece of this? I'm like, sure. Like, you know, we're not going to write that. And you know how to like do it in a way that people will actually read it. So sometimes I was, you know, focusing in that capacity and I would go back to them and then I usually I would show it to them, make sure I was getting stuff right. So it wasn't like, you know, creating new myths or new garbage out there. Um, and then sometimes I would be on shows talking about that. And then sometimes because I've, you know, spent 20 years now doing that with these people, 
I do have a lot of instincts. I still need to go back with and check, but like instincts and data pool of like, you know, knowing a lot of stuff. Sometimes I will be like, you know, the afternoon it's happening and I'll be like, well, let's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is like, you know, something that Mary Ellen O'Toole taught me from, um, and I, you know, so, yeah, it's different every time, but I, I do end up playing a role. But it was interesting on, on Parkland was the time I had kind of halfway decided. I actually told Chris Cuomo after I did New Day the morning after that, I think this is going to be my last one. I don't think I'm going to do this again. And literally, uh, David Hogg was on the same segment as me from Parkland um, right after me. So on the elevator down, back down to the street to walk home and never do this again. Um, I saw David Hogg. They have, they have monitors on the, in the, on the elevator there. I saw him on the elevator. I didn't get off the elevator, and I stood there for like the next eight minutes and just watched. Cause I'm like, what the hell is this? Had you never met him before? No, no, no. Okay. No, I had no idea. This is, no, this is the morning after Parkland. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, no one had. I had never seen it before or heard his name. Nobody oh. had. Um, but, he, but you noticed him as a, an important person or a significant Yeah, what person? he was saying. That's the, the time where he was saying, like, you know, we are children, you're adults, and calling out adult America, the, kind of the most famous speech. Oh, until, you know, um, Emma's speeches. But, like, the first immediate speech that went on the radar was the same segment of me, which I just, like, saw him on the elevator. I'm like, Whoa, what? And yeah, so I mean, that's oh, so how... he was on the TV in the elevator. Yes, he yes. He wasn't personally in the elevator. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. He was in Parkland, and mm-hmm. Emma Ellison Camarada, if I'm saying her name right, probably butching it, I was interviewing her live. Um, okay. uh, yeah, I don't think he'd been asleep yet. It was like just after dawn down there. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, he was interviewed. I'm like, what the hell is this? And so then, by noon that day, the morning after, I was writing a piece for Politico on, is this time different? So you unquit. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, like five minutes later, I sort of unquit. Yeah, that's like, I, the universe is always laughing at me. Like, the number of times I've walked away, you know, way back, we, we, you know, we talked earlier, way back to this conversation. After the one month out, after I finished that, like, long embedded in the evangelical community, Peace for Salon, I felt like, and Joan sort of felt like, okay, the story has gone cold. Now we did this piece. You know, um, this is an interesting piece, a magazine piece. We could do that. But now it's cold, and the world's moved on from Columbine. And I was like, done with that. That was one month out. And I really thought, like, that was the first time I finished with Columbine, one month out. And here it is 20 years <laughs> later. We're still talking about it. I know. That was about, there were about four or five times where I put it to bed. You know, after I finished the book tour, I was like, okay, thank God I never have to do that again. Um, I don't know how, how I was that naive. That was probably willful ignorance. Like, after 10 years on the book, I was just like, well, I don't know. I'm rethinking this as I think. I, I, I guess it wasn't so much like, I guess it wasn't naive. It was like, I decided. I was, you know, done like, okay, I... 10 years is enough. I'm not fucking talking about that again. Jumping back several beats in the conversation is that um, you've always been a proponent. I follow you on social media. So a proponent of not really naming or glorifying the perpetrators of school. Yeah, well, not always, but for a long time. For about eight years, I think I wrote a piece for BuzzFeed about it and took huge pushback from my peers. And so and so Parkland really it doesn't name the shooter. And it's really about the actions of these students. And you say in the book that um, it's, I don't know if it's the first time, but immediately it became clear that the survivors were, were the stars and not the shooters. And so how did 
that philosophy plus the realities of Parkland form the narrative that became Parkland. Oh, well, yeah, I, I knew I didn't want to name the shooter. Yeah, and well, you know, it was the kids being different that drew me down there and being, um, and taking over the narrator. And like you, narrative, like you said earlier, like figuring out also how to take control of their story and just creating it and having their own media and being the story and being much smarter about that. Well, they had tools that didn't exist yeah, e exactly. 20 years ago. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And within one week, Emma Gonzalez had more than a million followers on Twitter, which is more than the uh, NRA had like amassed in the history of Twitter um, and you know, their massive organization. Um, so, yeah, so I knew right away, that's the only reason I wanted to go down there, to do these kids and a response. I didn't, you know, you know, I told my editor at Vanity Fair, like, I don't want to, like, I'm not going there to document, you know, murder or tragedy again or what it's like to go through it or a killer. I have no interest. But uh, these kids are amazing. This could be changing. This could be a game changer. So I'll go there to do that. He's like, great. That's what he wanted me to do, too. Um, so I never had any intention of covering that other Columbine stuff. I want to write Columbine the sequel. Like, I already wrote that book. Um, and, you know, somebody else wants to. Somebody wrote Newtown, which I hear is good, but, you know. I couldn't bear to even read that again, much less write Is one. Is it more like Columbine? Than... I think so. Right. I think so, but I'm not even sure. Okay. Like, literally, I could not bear to read that again. Okay. Um, um, yeah, so I just went, so, yeah, so it was about the kids, but, you know, in terms of then, like, a book, I did wonder if there would be a book, and then it was sort of an act of faith because these kids were doing such amazing things um, that a story would kind of develop, but I do remember, and, and so I sort of storyboarded it out on my wall. Um, first on a whiteboard, but then I have a more permanent thing. And I was just, it's still up on my wall. It's sort of frozen in time, which is kind of cool in a way, like in April of last year, because that's when I got tired of doing it. And when, the, when I had enough of a structure to then be working on it. And, um, and so I had four columns, and I think there's Genesis. Um, I think the second one is the March. The third one is like, might be like, oh, is midterms. And then the last one is just sort of after, like epilogue. Um, and that sort of became of the book, is sort of like the three sections of the book. Um, what's in them is a lot different. Within each column, I had like a, a picture up for each chapter. And a lot of those became the chapters, especially in the first part. But toward the end, it, it you know, this, Pretty much the second and a half book really changed because it hadn't happened yet and I didn't really know what was going to be. So things were still developing. Developing, yeah. yeah. But, I, you know, I mapped out like, um, you know, prom, graduation, you know, the Spring Awakening play, um, and then, you know, maybe coming back to school in the fall and the midterms. But then I didn't really know, you know, when I like had the book deal, like the huge summer bus tour across America, they hadn't even, like, you know, come up with that idea yet. So I didn't know about that. And I didn't really know, even late in the, late last summer, I remember before Labor Day, I wrote big chunks of the book out at, you know, a couple friends of this place in Sag Harbor that they let me go, uh, this big place with like two guest houses in the back, the pool house, and they let me just stay there for weeks at a time. And they were often traveling and weren't there, and they like, let me take their dog, Bobby Sneakers. Uh, Is that the Corgi? The, the Corgi, okay. yes, yep. Um, out there and just, we would spend like 10 days at a time um, working, it was great to get away from the city and everything. Um, but I remember uh, to Elise, uh, who one weekend when they were there and I was talking, I was like, God, you know, I just don't know if this is like really 
a book or whether it's a story? Or is it just a bunch of stuff that happened? And I remember saying to Elise, um, who had read big pieces of it, and she said, you always think this, you get too close to it, and it really is, it's like really interesting. But I still wasn't sure what it was. But um, it, is already, it, it was already sort of like presenting itself, but I didn't have kind of faith in it. Because then thinking back, I got the first inkling midway through the summer. So the summer bus tour, I went for the first of the kickoff event in Chicago. I went to Denver about midway through, partly because I wanted to see them visiting Columbine. And then New York City, uh, the second and last stop, so almost the end. And they really changed over the course of that summer. And by midway through in Denver, the road was beating them up. They had been on the road for a month. And like any, you know, band will tell you, you know, touring is like, <laughs> touring is like, all right, why do you think so many bands break up? Because like, you know, life on the road is miserable. Um, and the kids who six months earlier said, I'm going to fight till the end of my life. Now we're saying like, okay, I was 17 when I said that. And like six months in is like, oh my God, okay, I can't do this my whole life. And so a few of them were feeling like that and were ready to sort of like move on and had figured that out. And some others were sort of like, really even more invigorated. And then some were like, yeah, it's tough, but I'm gonna keep doing it. But they were kind of reaching a reckoning. And then by, especially by New York City, I could tell talking, none of them wanted to say, because it was a little premature, but it was very obvious that like, and they were about to go back to school. Um, and a few like Emma onto college, some like David and, and Delaney taking a gap year and you know, to work on this. And then some going back to, to Douglas for their senior year or even uh, sophomore, junior year. Um, so there was a reckoning and there was a change and I was like, okay, they have sort of hit a milestone here and they're, they're different kids, they're different human beings than they were six months ago. They're, they have a whole different take on life and what this is going to be and really a sense of this for the long haul. And then really the midterms really became sort of like the goalpost and reaching for that. And then this really became, then this another sprint after the bus tour to that. And that, that's sort of like, stage one in this. How long was the bus tour? Two months. Okay. And that, you know, they, they told me early on that this will, you know, this is going to be a generational battle and it's going to take decades. And um, but it's a long war, but the first battle is going to be the first midterms, the first national election. And that's, and that's, you know, what I, you know, that's what the book is about year one, the, the birth of this uprising, which I think will continue for many, many years. But, um, that was sort of the cap on it, is, um, is the midterms. And then they sort of caught their breath. And then they kind of had almost a victory lap where they got, you know, invited. There were a lot of sort of year-end awards, and um, including the big one, you know, going to Cape Town, South Africa for the International Children's Peace Prize, which was amazing, which Desmond, Desmond, Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu mm -hmm. gave them. Um, and... Um, yeah, they're in a different place. And I think it closed out that first chapter and then on for chapter two. So um, I think that really did turn out to be a story with the beginning and middle end, beginning, middle and end. But at the beginning, it was an act of faith that that would happen and not knowing. And in the beginning, and in some of the middles, but uh, not sure if and when it was going anywhere. But you know what? I, like, I'd already spent enough time with those kids. Like, uh, I mean, a I was gonna say a week with those kids. You know, a few hours with those kids were like, wow, <laughs> these kids are doing something. You know, I, I don't know where they will be six months from year, 
six months from now, but it will be something extraordinary. And it was. And do you have a sense for where things are going? I mean, you, you really get into how complicated it is and yeah. how weird politically it is and how there's sort of all these NRA um, in, inbuilt beliefs, but then the, the kids sort of have to appeal to red states, air quotes, red states. Mm -hmm. So where do you think it, that's, that all is headed? Well, I think it's sort of two tracks. One is the electoral where they have to keep notching victories. And, you know, optimally, they, they want to sort of like take the Senate and the White House, so they'll have all, you know, sort of three um, and can get some legislation through. Um, so the first round of legislation. So that's sort of one track is winning and legislative and, and bringing the other side to the bargaining table by winning because no one on their side had won anything in a generation. It was all lost, 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 lost. Mm -hmm. But I think the longer, the bigger track is getting people to meet somewhere in the middle. And that's why from the beginning they were going to gun country and right. wanting to talk to people. Because, um, you know, gun owners love their children too and are worried about this and don't like the situation either. Um, and, you know, polls show, you know, most gun owners, most NRA members, you know, agree with universal background checks and most of the kids' agenda. Um, but there's been this like, don't give an inch mentality and, and strategy, strategy, tactic. When did that take over the NRA? Because it doesn't feel like it was that way when I was a kid. It, it totally wasn't. No, it's yeah. the past 20 years or so. Like, okay. uh, there was a change. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the history as well as I should because it was also it was like, it was during our lifetimes, but uh, not during the kids' lifetimes, um, but a few decades ago. Okay. Um, where, yeah, they made a dramatic shift. Um, yeah, and it's become this thing. Um, also, in our lifetime, um, the Second Amendment was never regarded, uh, it was regarded as being for militias, and mm -hmm. that individual ownership, you know, was not protected and considered by, that's a, that's a rethinking, you know, it's, it's kind of hysterical that, you know, conservatives, you know, tout themselves as originalists and, like, we don't change laws, like, uh, on guns, like you've completely rewritten the Constitution. Uh, the, the 200 years of meaning it, like you've completely flipped. Um, so you're not freaking originalists on that at all. Um, you know, they're originalists when it's convenient. That's more of a talking point. Um, but so, yeah, they, they redefine the Second Amendment also in our lifetime. Um, and I, I believe Bork was a big part of that. But anyway, um, so, but that, that's the bigger con conversation. And the, the problem is like, most people in America do want to meet somewhere in the middle and do want to find some compromise on this, including the gun owners, but nobody trusts the other side to get to the middle. And with good reason. You know, you know I think it, you know, liberals, if they had their way, would push the gun owners all the way. Um, well, back to, well, maybe back to how things were when we were kids. Um, and, you know, would outlaw assault weapons um, and, you know, do these things. Um, Although, I actually, I don't even know how many gun owners really think we need assault weapons. Um, I think a lot of them might actually... I, I, here's the thing. I think a lot of them would be fine with us not, having assault, not allowing assault weapons. I don't think most of them want to agree to that for that same principle because that's another stepping stone that's giving another inch, giving another mile, and they're afraid. I think they feel like... I think the majority is like, yes, I want to hunt. Like, I don't... I don't need assault weapons, and like my friends shouldn't have their assault weapons. But I don't, I don't trust you to stop there if I give you that. So you that's that's the thing of figuring out how do we find a trust to meet in the middle, 
or, or find a way to meet in the middle when no one trusts each other to go to the middle. You mentioned too that um, it's, there's no longer a red-blue constituency, it's sort of red versus blue teams. Yes, exactly. Know? That the, the NRA sort of dictates the, the Republican status quo, whether or not people you know, really unpack that, you know, Yes, and that's, yeah, right. And that's the problem. So there have been certain issues that have been taken out of that. And that, that's the kids hope to, to take it out of that red-blue conversation, something that can transcend, transcend that. Um, you know, I think some of the global warming people have also really tried that. And it's sort of been back and forth. Um, you know, because I think most people agree to climate change is a thing. And eventually it will come out of that because as, as more and more people under millennials and so forth become of age, I think Republican and Democrat young people are, Democratic young people are like, of course there's climate change and we have to do something. Um, you know, I mean, some of the kids here think it's the same thing. It's like people of their generation um, want to do something about guns. And it might be, you know, till their generation is the largest voting block that it will take till then. So you think it is a generational thing that there's sort of a young, a, a different outlook among younger Americans? Yeah, very much so. Uh -huh. Yeah, but especially ones that grew up with this. I mean, it's, it's, it's always foolish, you know, to predict the future. So I don't know how it will play out. But I, as in terms of the present, yeah, there's a, a whole different way of looking at things of, you know, people... I don't know, under 20, 30, uh, who grew up as the Columbine generation, who were, you know, really anybody, I guess anybody under 30, if you were 10 when Columbine happened, then pretty much all you can remember about, you know, your life has been lockdown drills, and so you're pretty much the Columbine generation if you're under 30. Right. Interesting. And so... Like, where do you, do you see things being different? Is there a Parkland 2 to be written in, in 2029? No. Um, no, if I ever have to do this, make this a trilogy, just freaking strangle me now. Um, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I swore I would never do this book. Um, but, you know, I swore I would never do a book in another school, another school shooting, but I didn't. I did a book in a response to it. Right. Um, and maybe there is some other chapter that has to be written. Um, you know, hopefully it'll be somebody different than me. Um, I don't know, but I, I, I do want America to solve this, so I don't need to do some other freaking book. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Dave Cullen's new book, Parkland, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.